And if that doesn't do something in you, you might want to check your ticker, okay? Something ain't working in you. Because that's why we exist, for, for people like that, for you to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Uh, grab your Bibles if you got them. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6, okay? We're finally going to make it to Jericho. And as you're heading to Joshua chapter 6, I'm just going to take a little pastor privilege here, because I can and you can't stop me. And uh, a friend of mine, Sheriff Mike Williams, is right here on the front row. And I just want to say thank you for being here. And I also want to say to all the police officers, especially to your boss here, but to, to all of you, I just need you all, all the police officers to know this. You have a, you have a friend in 1122, that we thoroughly believe, amen, we thoroughly believe that you are um, a part of God's justice here on this earth and also his grace and his mercy. And all throughout our city, all the time, even right now, people are in need and they cry out, dear God, please help me. And he says, I hear your prayer and I answer your prayer. And he don't send a preacher. He sends a policeman to show up. And so, uh, and I know in a, in a time where the media is not always your friend, you have a friend in the church of 1122, and we honor all the police officers, all the men and women that put on a uniform that stand in the gap for our safety uh, so that we can stand here and worship Jesus together. Church of 1122, can we honor all the men and women that serve us so faithfully? Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, get your Bibles. That was for free. See, the other services didn't even get that. All right, isn't that great? Uh, Joshua chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Um, <clears throat> so I was on the way to church here this morning, and, uh, and, and I look over at my son, JP. Somehow he can't get up and get ready for school, but he can get ready for church every week. And so, uh, and so I say, all right, buddy, big question. Who's going to win? Is it the Panthers or the Broncos? And he's a rule follower, and he scratches his head, and he goes, Daddy, did you know that Cam Newton stole a bunch of computers? <laughs> yes, I know it very well, son. And he goes... And he got kicked out of his school, but you know where he went? I was like, yeah. He goes, yep, he went to Auburn. And then he says, they'll take anybody, <laughs> which is true. And then he said, uh, then he waited for a little while. You can see the little 10-year-old wheels turning. He goes, Daddy, I think our church is kind of like Auburn. I said, what do you mean? He said, we'll take anybody. I said, you dang right. But if you say War Eagle, you're going to walk to church. All right, so... It is true, and here's what I know. So, so what we're about to walk into right here are the glory days of Israel. Of all of Israel's history, there's only about seven good years, and there really are. From its inception almost till today, there's only about seven years where everything was going right. And these are the years uh, that start right here at Jericho. And so for there, some of you, I mean, we're a movement for all people. So some of you walk in here today, and life is just glorious. Well, just bless your heart, okay? Okay. Um, this message you might want to hold on to and come back to in about six months when the wheels fall off, because for a bunch of people in here, because we are a movement for all people, and the number of people that will be in all of our locations and menus, etc., this weekend, some of you are walking into what looks like an impossible situation, and an impassable situation. Some of you are in an impossible financial situation. I mean, you just look at what you got, and you look at what you owe, and it just don't line up. And you're thinking, Lord, if you don't do something, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. And some of you are in an impossible relational situation. I mean, your marriage is in such a ditch that the only future you can see is a divorce. You may already be separated, and you're thinking, this, this thing is just impossible. I've tried everything I know how to do, and I just don't know what else to do. <laughs> and there's some of you that are thinking, I just wish I could get broken up with. I would like to get that, to that point in my relational world where I could have a date, multiple dates. I would look forward to even somebody just telling me we can't do this anymore, okay? That would be great because so far my dating life has just seemed like an impossible situation. For some of you, it's just internal. It really doesn't have anything to do with the external circumstances. Your circumstances should point you to happiness, but you just can't seem to muster it up and you feel like 
Now listen, when I show up to church, okay, and everybody asks me, hey, how you doing? You're like, I'm blessed, but I ain't blessed. I'm jacked up. My whole world's jacked up. Everybody else's world looks perfect, at least according to their Facebook photos. Everything's going great. My life, not great. If that's you, we're going to look at how do you walk into an impossible situation. But I do have good news. If you're in an impossible situation, that is the environment whereby God does his best work. That you are perfectly positioned to watch God do what God is really good at doing. So go to Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to read through. It's a lot of Bible, okay? So even if my sermon's not good, just pay attention to this part of it because it's really good. I'm going to read through the entire account here. And I don't like to say story because it's not a story because when you say story, you think of like once upon a time in a land far away. Like these, these were not imaginary make-believe people. Like these were real live people going through a, a real life situation. And so we're going to read through that and then I'm going to go back and give you some observations. So chapter 6 verse 1 says, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel, and none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor, and you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpet. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests, and he said to them, take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. Now, one of the things that's just true, one of the things if you're going to read through Joshua, not just this chapter, but all through it, you'll be reading it and you're like, I feel like I just read that before. Here's why. Because you just read that before. So here's how Joshua is written. Not only is God trying to instruct us by the content of the words, but also by the way the words are assembled here in the text. So what happens almost every time is, this is the pattern, and God said to Joshua, do this. And Joshua said to the people, do this. And then the people did this. And so it just kind of goes on repeat which is probably, by the way, this is why they had these seven years of glory. For one of the few times in the history of Israel, the people did what the, what the prophet of God said God said for the people to do. And so that's why it sounds like it's on repeat. Verses 8. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. And the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets. And the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, and then you shall shout. And so he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp, and they spent the night in the camp. Now just think, okay, here's the problem. If you grew up in and around church, you already know the end of the story. So this doesn't sound weird to you. But just imagine if you're one of the soldiers, and you walk around the city, and then you get done, and you're sitting down in your camp, and like, what are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to do that again. Are you sure? This seems like a horrible plan. Yeah, this is what we're going to do. And can you imagine you're walking around, but how long are we going to, shut up, dude, you're not supposed to talk yet, okay? When you hear the long blast, have you not been paying attention? All right, this is actually what's happening, and they want to believe it's going to work, but they don't know, okay? And so I'm going to skip down to 15, because he just keeps repeating what they did, verse 15, and on the seventh day, they rose early. 
at the dawn of the day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18 and 19, I want you to put a bracket around. We're going to come back to that next week. I'm going to tell you how to be rich, all right? So you're going to don't want to miss that, verse 18 and 19. Uh, but you keep for yourself from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord, and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So again, that's all next week, verse 20. And so the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, Oxen, sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, I'm just a little time out here. Oftentimes, when people read the Old Testament, they're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you mean to tell me that when God told the nation of Israel to take over Jericho, that they went in and they wiped out all the people, the men and the women, uh-huh, and the donkeys and the oxen and the sheep, yep, yeah, and the dogs, yeah, and the cats, obviously, right? Yes, the whole thing. So then the question is like, well, what about the innocent people? The answer is all the innocent people were spared. All of them. And here's the reality. There are no innocent people. They're not. Every single one of us, by nature and nurture, are wretched, black-hearted sinners. If you don't believe me, see, you're two-year-old. You did not train them to sin. It came from the inside of them. My kids did not learn to bite each other from their mom. Gretchen never went to me and says, we are watching HGTV. And I, I bit my arm and took the remote. Mine, never. But yet, that was in my children. So we know this. We also know that there's going to be one family spared, and that's Rahab. Why? Because she surrendered to the Lord. She said, I'm switching. Remember chapter 2? I'm switching from Team Canaan to Team Jesus. I'm with you. And so God makes a way for every single person to be forgiven, not by what they do, but who they trust. And when Rahab trusted God, then she was spared. So that's what happens there. Verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron. They put into the treasury of the house of the Lord, verse 25. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. I think that's the only way to save somebody which is alive, but the Bible wants you to know is that they saved her alive. I don't know how you say somebody dead, but they saved her alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, what I want to do is look through this and answer this question. So how do you walk into an impossible situation? But these are just like four observations from this text. What I want you to always beware of is I'm never like the four steps to anything guy, okay? Uh, I, I don't think there's four holy hops to heaven, and here's why. You have been in sermons before where it's like, hey, here's four steps to hope, and then you apply the, the four steps, and you're, you're, you're hopeless after that because you're like, it didn't work. Or here's the four ways to be awesome, and you're like, check, check, oh, I'm getting tired, and I'm still not awesome. What do I do now, okay? So what this is is if you are in an impossible situation, 
Here are just some things that I think are transferable principles from this text to our life. Number one is this. First and foremost, you have to keep your life centered on Christ. Centered on Christ. If you look in verse 9, it says, The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpet blew continually. So right in the middle of this procession is the ark of the covenant. And just in case you missed last week, the Ark of the Covenant is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. That the Ark of the Covenant is this box, it's a rectangular deal, and inside of it is the covenant of God. The God is not a contractual God. You know, your relationship with God is not like your relationship with Verizon, okay? He, he doesn't have a contract with us, he has a covenant. He says, I am your God, you are my people. Regardless of what you do, this is what I promise that I am gonna do. And so he gives us his law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and inside, inside this box are the Ten Commandments. And this box was made out of acacia wood, which is a regular wood, which represents humanity, and it's inlaid in gold which represented divinity. So you've got humanity wrapped in divinity. It's a picture of Jesus. And then on top of this Ark of the Covenant, there are these two angels or cherubim. They face one another, and it looks like a throne. It was called the mercy seat of God. Eventually, when they build the tabernacle and the temple in the, in the promised land, they're gonna put this Ark in this little room called the Holy of Holies, and, and it represented the very presence of God. And one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would shed the blood of an innocent lamb. He would sprinkle it on the cover or the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The idea being, when God looks down, he does not see his broken laws, but he sees the shed blood of an innocent lamb covering over the sin for the Jewish people for one year. And then Jesus comes along. And at, at, at the River Jordan, the day that Jesus gets baptized, his first cousin, John the Baptizer, says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who's come to take away the sin of the entire world. And all the good Hebrew school guys would be like, Oh, time out. Don't you mean another Lamb of God has come to cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one year? And, and John the Baptist would say, No, 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 no. That was the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. Now we've got a new and improved covenant or a new and improved testament. And that's the Lamb of God who's come to not cover, but take away the sin, and not just of one uh, particular group of people, but to take away the sin of all people. And so this ark is right in the middle of what God calls these people to do as they're marching around Jericho. So you're like, what does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with us, is that what we've been asking around here for the past, it started last semester, and it's gonna be happening for the next two years, is this, is, is Jesus before all things in your life? Is he at the center of your life? That little phrase, before all things, comes from Colossians chapter one that says that Christ is preeminent. And it doesn't just mean first. It really means before all things, that he's at the center, that he's above and behind and below and in, that all things are created by him, for him, through him, and to him. And the danger is what a lot of southern evangelical Christians do is they compartmentalize their life. And the compartmentalization of our life is not a biblical value at all. Like, is Jesus the center of your life, or is this thing just like a weekend activity? Because what a lot of people do is they think about their world in compartments. They think, hey, look, I got my work life, and I got my dating life, and I got my family life, and I've got my internet life, and I've got my church life, and I got my fun life. And then what happens, here's when it will be exposed. Sometimes it's exposed in sermons like this, and you're getting all worked over right now. That's the Holy Spirit. That's not me, okay? 
I can't do that to you. On Thursday night, I had this lady come up to me, sweet, sweet lady, she sits right over here, and she said, she's from uh, Callahan, and she said, honey, if you got something to tell me, you can just call me. You ain't got to say it in front of all these people. Okay, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life about a sermon. The best. That's just the spirit digging. Like, I don't know her. Okay, so, now here's what happens. You, you've got all those compartments, man, and you can work it, right? You can work it until something like a Super Bowl party, and you get your church friends and your fun friends, and they're in the same room, and you're like, uh-oh, awkward. That is just evidence of this compartmentalization of your life. In fact, one of the ways I've heard it, well-meaning Christian people will say, the order of my life is God and family and work and then fun. And I think God goes, eh. God doesn't just, Jesus doesn't just simply want to be first on your list, but really it's like Jesus is the paper on which you're writing your list. Because the problem is, if it's just God first and then family, the problem is then you go, okay, check, I did that God thing. Like I went to church and I read my Bible and I said a prayer and I went on a mission trip. I did that thing, check, now I can move on to the next thing. Now that's the way I was raised. I didn't really grow up in church, but when I did, I went to a Southern Baptist church and we literally got graded every week. We would get our offering envelopes. Some of you are nodding your head because you've been there with me. And you would check the boxes of the activities by which you had participated in. And Jesus did not come and die to change your activities. He came to change your identity. And there it was. It'd be like, check. I read my Bible. I opened my Bible. Jesus wept. Check. There's one. <laughs> did you witness this week? I look at my brother. Hey, Russ, do you know about Jesus? All right, check. I witnessed, right? And, it became, and we literally were graded. And like the hardcore bab, they had like a sash with little ribbons on it. I'm telling you, it was, it was crazy, okay? And then I failed all the time. But the problem is that if you begin to compartmentalize like that, it, it, it's, it's problematic. So the question is not, is it God first and then family? No, no, no. It's more like, how do, you, how do you glorify God in your family? And how do you glorify God at work? And how do you glorify God on the golf course? Let me say that one again. How do you glorify God on the golf course? If you're lying about your score, that's not glorifying to God. Bunch of cheaters, all right, he knows. So there is no, there is no compartmentalization. It's why, by the way, on Tuesday night, right here, we're kicking off Lent with an elder-led prayer night. That we will gather in this place, and the elders, we will call our church to a 40-day fast. Every Tuesday from sunup to sundown, if you're medically able, we want to fast from food. And here's why. Here's why. It's an opportunity for us to look at our flesh and say no. Because your flesh is a lot like your kids. If you always answer yes, they'll kill you. The same thing is true with your, with your flesh. If you always say yes to your kids, I'm telling you, you'll ruin them. And if you always say yes to your flesh, uh, you'll ruin you. And it's an opportunity to say, hey, listen, I'm going to establish that my world does not revolve around my stomach, but my world revolves around Jesus. And so on Tuesdays, we're going to fast from food so that when we get hungry, it's an opportunity to say no to our flesh and yes to Jesus. And here's what's just crazy, okay? Some of you are going to join us for the very first time. Some of you are going to be like, I'm more hardcore. I'm going to start the night before. Okay, Pharisee, do whatever you want. But here's what we're doing. Because some of you ever accidentally fast? I do it sometimes. I get to dinner, I'm like, I don't think I've eaten today. I'm not even that hungry. But you wait until you intentionally fast. You're going to wake up on Tuesday morning and be like, oh my God, I'm so starving. Oh gosh, why am I so hungry? You just will. 
and you're going to become a meteorologist. You're going to know exactly when the sun comes up and exactly when the sun goes down, and you're going to get super pharisaical, and you're going to see other people at 1122, or some of you fools are going to, on Tuesday, take a picture of your lunch, and we're going to come after you, all right? But it's an opportunity for you to tell your flesh no, to say, my life revolves around Jesus. Jesus, you are more than enough, more than enough. And then we want to invite our entire church to fast from something for the whole 40 days, some food or drink or a TV show or whatever it is, but something that helps us center our life on Jesus, to say, look, he is my identity. He has changed not just what I do, but he has changed who I am. So first and foremost, that we keep our life centered on Jesus Christ. Secondly, is that we have to understand that his ways are not our ways. That his ways are not our ways. In verses six through nine, they roll through the plan. Joshua says, all right, fellas, here's the plan. We're gonna send out the ark, and in front of them we'll have some people, behind them we'll have some people, and you're gonna march all the way around the city, and then you're gonna blow trumpets, but you're not gonna say anything. And then you're gonna do it every day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're gonna do it seven times. And then, and then, you're gonna blow the trumpets and shout, and the walls will come tumbling down. Now think about this. See, here's the problem. You already know what's gonna happen. But think about it if you're one of the mighty men of valor, if you're in the army. You know what I'm thinking? That's a dumb plan. Right, may I just point out a few things, okay? Um, I don't know that we should draw a whole lot of attention to our worship team uh, because I don't know about you, but skinny jeans and, and T-shirts with scarves don't inflict a fear upon Jericho, one of the mightiest cities ever, okay? And if they blow the trumpet every day for a week, there goes our surprise, all right? So this plan is crazy. And I've just got to tell you this. If I'm in this group, because I'm a driven, get-her-done kind of guy, I just am. One day, no problem. You know, I can do a lap, whatever. If you can do Disney, you can do Jericho. You know what I mean? Walk around. But here's, here's, where I, here's where I get, and I know you do too, but you won't admit it, but that's fine. I will for you. So I'm beginning to think, oh, I know, I get it. This is a part of the strategy. You see, God wants us to walk around so that we can observe and look for the weak spots or where we put the ladders. Did anybody leave a door open? You know, I mean, that's what this is. This is a recon trip, all right? Maybe that's it. And God's like, no, 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 you're not even going to attack. You're just going to shout. And then here's where I would go to. On, on the first day, I'd, I'd be fine, right? We'd do our lap. We'd camp. We'd get up the next day. But by, by Wednesday, Thursday, you know what I'm thinking? This ain't working. I mean, we have done this day after day after day, and it's just not working. What is happening here? And then, nobody would say it this way, but here's what you think. God needs my help. Yeah, God needs my help. God, I know this is the way you said to do it, but I actually think my way is going to be better than your way. And here's the deal. Like, you don't think we act that way? But let me tell you what happens every day. And this isn't some people out there. I'm talking about us. Every day, people that call themselves Christians, that Jesus is their Lord, they pick up the Bible. And, they, and, and we like to read the Bible with a highlighter and a pair of scissors. And there's some parts of it we love. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And you highlight that. Like, oh, man, that is my verse. That's my life verse. Right there, that's my life verse. And then you get over here, 1 Corinthians 6, and it says, flee sexual immorality. You're like, uh-oh. Nah, that ain't for me. That's for teenagers and young people. Let me just cut that out right there. Get out. Nah, I don't like that part. We find one about how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, yeah, he loved me so much. Jesus died on the cross. That's my, that's my other verse. You circle that one. And then you get to what God says to do with money. 
And he says, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You're like, nah, that's for poor people and real rich people. That ain't for me. I'm right in the middle. Get that. <laughs> Once I get enough, when you give me enough, then I'm going to start giving some away. But until then, and I know that one guy, you told him to sell everything and give to the poor. That's obvious just to that one guy. You weren't talking to me. See, what you want me to do is to use the poor so I can get some more stuff from me. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, in fact, uh, somewhere in here, I know it's in here somewhere, I can't find it, so I'm going to just write it in. God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, let me add some to it, God, because you're not getting it right. Or power, or power, you see, you, you get to some places like John 13, there's not just one verse here that you can try to hop over, it's the whole chapter. The Bible says, and Jesus, knowing that all authority in heaven and earth had been put under him, he demonstrated the full extent of his love to his disciples in this, he got up from the table, and he dressed himself as a servant, and he washed his disciples' feet. Then he sat down, he said, I've set for you an example, and you'll be blessed if you do likewise. And you think, well, why even be the boss? I mean, I haven't worked so hard to be the boss so that I could serve people. I, I worked hard to be the boss so that people could serve me. I don't like that part. I'm going to clip that part out. Uh, get that part on out of here. You know, because everything happens for a reason. I'm going to write that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. You, you think it's just like a, a theory, and it's not, see? Essentially, what we do, we would never say this, but here's what we're doing. We're like, God, um, I, know, I, I know parts of what the Bible says, but, I, but I'm smarter than you. I mean, you wrote this a long time. A lot of times, I mean, but, you know, things have changed. Science has changed. Our understanding of humanity has changed, and genetics has changed, and we have technology, and we know things that you didn't know, God, and we treat God like he's an old man wandering around the mall with socks, sandals, OP shorts on, and a fanny pack, and you're like, oh, what a cutie, but I'm not going to listen to what he says. Listen. There's parts of your own back that you can't even scratch. And you're going to stand before a sovereign God and tell him how life works? You can't even lick your own elbow. And every time I do that, there's somebody who's like, you know, he's right. And then one of you freaks like, I can. Okay, join the circus, all right? That's God's plan for your life. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, God knows what he's talking about. And just because from our limited perspective that we don't think he does, does not change the reality that God knows what he's talking about. Didn't the great 20th century theologian Garth Brooks teach us all this and one of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayers? All of us are like, what does that song mean? And you went to your first high school reunion, you're like, dear God, thank you for not saying yes to that one. Why? Because he knows and he knows better he knows better than we do. And it's not just that. It, it comes down into the way we relate to God. A lot of times, we don't, the way we relate to God is we want to relate to him on our own terms, as if he doesn't know what he's doing. One of my favorite places is in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16 is when God, when Jesus institutes the church. It says this, in Matthew 16, 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they believe kind of in a weird reincarnation. I'm not sure how he and John the Baptist could be alive at the same time and you think they're the same person, but they were confused, all right? And then he asked this question, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when he says this, all the lights in the dashboard in heaven go off. Ding, 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 we have a winner, okay? The whole so showcase showdown is yours, Peter. Congratulations. That's exactly who Jesus is. He's the Christ, 
the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means his name is Simon, and he's the son of a guy named Jonah. And he says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. He changes his name from Simon to Peter, and it's a play on words here, because Peter is Petra in Greek. It means rock, and they're literally standing on a rock outside of Caesarea Philippi looking down on this little pagan temple called the gates of hell, all right? And here's what he says. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying, upon the public proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's what the church is going to be built on. And there's nothing ever that can stop it. And Peter, you're going to play a really big role in this. Now, Protestants like us think that it's built on not the person Peter, but on the public declaration of Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, in that moment, he changes his name. We would call him Rocky. And he says, now look at verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's called the gospel. Jesus is saying, what this whole movement of the church is going to be built on is my life, death, and resurrection. The substitutionary atoning death of Jesus at the cross. That's what the whole thing is going to be built on. And it's not like he taught it one time. It's like he says, he began to show his disciples. He kept doing this over and over and over. And look at the next verse. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Now that word rebuke, here's what this means. Peter, he, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that's right, you got a new name, Rocky. All right, huddle up, boys. This is how this is going. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer for the sin of all mankind. I'm going to die, but don't be afraid. On the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter's response is, Jesus Christ, get over here. That's what a rebuke is. That's what he did. Imagine how that goes. And, and then he looks, what are you talking about? Not on my watch. I mean, how, how in the world are you going to institute the kingdom of heaven? How in the world are you going to bring God to earth? How in the world are you going to do this hanging on a cross? That plan, Jesus, that's a dumb plan. Let's go with my plan. I'm going to chop off ears, and I'm going you know, to make this thing happen. In, on my, in my Bible, on the same page, he goes from Rocky, dun, 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 to the devil. Jesus, right, right after this, says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. You see what happens here? If, if Peter can go from the Pope to the devil on one page, don't think we can't. That God can't say, hey, listen, this is the way we're going to do this. This is the way I'm telling you to live your sex life or your love life or your dating life or your financial life or all of that. And you're like, nah, I don't think so. I think I'm going to do it my way. The moment you begin to do that and walk away from the word of God, then you're playing for a team, but it ain't team Jesus. And the captain of that other team has one goal in mind for you. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy everything about you. You see, we have to understand that his ways are not our ways, but he's a good dad, and he's still got the whole world in his hands. And just because you don't understand it right now, it's not about understanding. It is about faith in the one who created all of life. He probably knows how to live it abundantly. The third thing is this, that God always keeps his promises. That God always keeps his promises. 
Look in verses 22 and 23. It says, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. And so the young men who had been spies, they went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brother and all who had belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. But they don't live outside the camp forever. By the end, it says they move them to inside the camp. And not only do they become a part of Israel, a part of the family, but eventually God uses Rahab to be like the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. And here's what this means, that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. Because in chapter two, the spies came in and Rahab surrenders her life to the Lord. She says, I've seen the evidence. God has melted my heart and I, I'm switching my allegiance from Team Cana to Team Jesus. I'm going with the Lord. And she surrenders to the Lord and God spares her life and her entire family. Do you know why her entire family is there? Because, because when you experience the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, you bring everybody with you that you can. You're like, look, I don't even know how this is happening, okay? I'm a prostitute in the, in the enemy territory. I don't know how, but somehow God's grace and God's mercy, he's extended to me. So come on. Why don't you come with me to my apartment? Why don't you come in here? And, and God might extend that same grace and mercy to you. By the way, if you're a guest here today, this is your first or second time, and somebody invited you to be here, that's why. That's why they invited you. Because they have experienced something. They may not even be able to explain it. They may not even have all the words. And in fact, they love you so much, they want you to meet the one that loved you so much that he gave his life for you. And they didn't know how to tell you that on the golf course. They'd be like, hey, Bob, I love you, man. But like, okay, we're never playing golf again together. All right, so the way that got translated is, hey, why don't you come to church with me? And see, and I just need to tell you this. I, I just need to hit it straight on. One of the things I've learned is that there's a lot of people here, okay, a lot of people here that feel like somehow you can lose your salvation or you can never, you can never have it in, in the beginning because of bad things that you have done. It's impossible to lose your salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus, he saves you, you don't save you. It's not your activity that saves you. And since it's a gift of grace by God and you didn't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to lose it. Your salvation, or not, it's not like your car keys. It's like, where did I put my salvation, okay? Where is that? Because here's what you think. You get in here, and you get all emotional, I, you know, because I wear you out, tell some story or whatever, and then you're like, okay, I'm in, and you surrender your life to Christ. And then that Friday, you don't act like a Christian. It's not like God sees you on Sunday and is like, oh, welcome to the family, and then sees you Friday and says, no, give it back, give it back. Because he knew. He knew everything that we were going to do, everything that we were going to do, and still chose to pay for all of our sin and, like Rahab, adopt us into the family. And with God, there are no takebacks. John 10, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. You cannot lose your salvation. You see, I've told you this before. Um, I record all the Georgia football games, all of them. And then I keep, this year I kept 10, all right? And here's why. I just erase the losses because they usually cheat or something bad happens, okay? So I just get those out of there. And signing day was this Wednesday, so you know I'm kind of in the football mood or whatever. And so I'm going through some of the Georgia games again. My kids just don't know when football season is somehow. And so they'll come into the room and be like, oh, is Georgia playing? I'm like, they sure are. And they pop down on the couch with me, okay? And here's the thing. 
I've seen to the end of the game, I know how this thing is going to turn out. And inevitably, we do something dumb, like we fumble going in on the one-yard line or whatever, and my kids are like, oh, no, Daddy. And I go, fear not, children. The Bulldogs will prevail. How do you know, Daddy? I just know, son. I just know. Here's the deal. I've read to the end of the game. And if you are in Christ, guess what? You won. You won. Even if currently you fumble and you throw an interception and you get tackled for a loss or whatever it happens, regardless of the current circumstances going around you right now, even if they're all your fault, I have read to the end of the game and every single one of us that are in Christ, then we win. We win. Which leads us to the fourth thing I want to cover. And it's this. That nothing is impossible with God. That nothing is impossible with God. That you and I are fighting from victory. We're not fighting for victory. That before Joshua and his crew ever do their first lap around Jericho, God says in verse 2, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given, that's past tense, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. He says, listen, I've already accomplished it for you, Joshua. Now you just need to take claim what I have promised to you. And what I want you to know is that nothing is impossible with God. Because here's what I think was happening. Every single day when they took a lap around Jericho, they, they just had more and more and more and more evidence that this is impossible. Can you imagine you're walking around and you're seeing it and you're like, I don't see a weak place. I don't see the place to put a ladder. I don't see like a, a screen door. I don't see any way that we are going to be able to get through these walls of Jericho. Day after day after day. But when those trumpets blasted, the Bible says they shouted. I always wonder, what did they shout? Shout, shout. I think that's why they went, you know, Tears of Fear song. They yell at it, and then what happens? And then the walls come tumbling down. The walls come tumbling down, and here's what's crazy. Here's what's crazy. The very stones that appeared to them to be impassable and impossible were the very stones that they walked on as a bridge from where they were to where God had called them to receive their promise. You understand that? That there's some things in your life that look impossible. And, and those are the very things that God often uses for you to walk into claiming his goodness and his promise. And listen, here's what I should tell you. Uh, especially if you're young, if you're a millennial, all right, there's a lot, of, a lot of literature right now about how do churches reach millennials. And we have a pretty young church, and so people call me all the time and be like, how do you reach millennials? I'm like, I don't know, ridicule? I don't know. I make fun of them a lot. So if you're in your 20s and early 30s, you should find someone whose hair is either turned gray or turned loose, and you should ask them some questions about life. And if you're 22, we don't really care what you think about life. Shut up, okay? That's just true. <laughs> Because you haven't lived any yet. It's okay. It's not your fault. It's going to get better over time. Because what people, they've been walking with Jesus for a while, which is why, this is why we are, this is a movement for all people, and that means every generation. I'll walk over a young family to get some gray hairs in here and be like, hey, 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 I'm Joby. Can we hang out? Please be here. I need your help. Because we don't want to just be a whole bunch of 20-year-olds. Do you understand? And if you're 20, again, it's not your fault. You can't help it, all right? It had to do with your mom and dad. We'll explain it later. And, uh. But we just don't want to be 20-year-olds. The concentration of ignorance scares me, all right? We want to be intergenerational. So the guys like me, I'm 42, can lean into my elders, and they can talk to me about times in their life when God was so faithful, 
When there was a place in their life where this wall looked impossible and impassable, and by God's mighty hand, and the, and, the, and the trumpet blast, and the shout of God's people, the wall fell down. And this thing that you were asking God to remove for your life, the reason he kept it in there is so that you could walk on it to walk into what he called you to walk into. I say it this way, God never wastes a hurt. God will never waste a hurt. That he's still got the whole world in his hands. And, and I know some of you are like, I don't know, I don't know. That's fine, bring your I don't know to Jesus, and just bring it to him and follow after him. Did you know if you follow after him long enough, all of your I don't knows will go away. You'll follow him all the way into heaven, and then all of your I don't knows will be gone. And if somebody comes up to you, you'll be like, do you believe in Jesus? Be like, yeah, he's sitting right there, right? All of your doubts will go away. But if you've got doubts right now, and they seem impossible, impassable, I've got good news. If you've got doubts, you're going to make a great disciple. In Mark chapter 9, there's an impossible situation. This dad He's got a son. The Bible says he has an unclean spirit that's trying to kill him. Cause him to convulse. Sometimes he ends up in a fire and water. And can you, come on parents, you're with me. What would you do to try to, to, try to make sure that your son was healthy and whole? You'd do whatever it took, right? So by the time this dad gets to Jesus in Mark 9, he's tried everything. He's probably tried psychologists and psychiatrists, and he didn't know the difference, and neither do I, but he's going to try them both. And he probably tried wicks, doctors, and God, everything he could think of. And in fact, at one point, he brings the boy to the disciples, and they can't cast the demon out. And so he comes to Jesus in Mark chapter 9, and he says, Jesus, if you can, could you heal my son? And Jesus says, if I can. All things are possible for the one who believes. That's what Jesus says. And you know what the man doesn't say? He doesn't stand there with his cape in the wind with this big faith F right there. Well, I believe. He doesn't. Because I've met people like that, and they scare me a little bit. I can't wait to meet this brother in Mark 9. You know what he says? He says, I believe. And help me overcome my unbelief. I believe. I mean, I'm here. I'm at your feet. And honestly, I kind of believe about this much. And I need you to help me overcome all this. Because he's still sick, and I've been praying every day my whole life. And I've made sacrifices, and I've done whatever the preacher said, and I gave money. I did everything, and he's still sick. And I believe, and help me overcome my belief. And you know what Jesus does not say? He doesn't say, well, go work on your unbelief. And when your faith meter gets to like, ding, then the miracles kick in. He doesn't. Jesus steps in and casts out the unclean spirit. And the boy is made whole. The boy is made new. You see, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. Now, let me give you a warning, okay? Let me give you a warning. This text on Jericho and the walls come tumbling down, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Because what some of you are going to do, are you're going to go, okay, my impossible situation is a date. And you're going to find her in here, and after the service, you're going to be marching around her, shouting, please go out with me. She'll be like, no, like it didn't work. That's not how it works, Okay? Or else if some guy starts circling you, call the sheriff. All right, he'll help. <laughs> so you got to be careful because what we always want to do is we want to insert ourselves into the story of the Scriptures as if we're the hero. You ain't Joshua. You know who you and I are? We are Jericho. Do you know what the impossible, impassable wall is? It's that stone wall of our heart and our defenses and our doubts that we throw up before the Lord. You see, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
You see, God sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission to redeem and reconcile the entire world. And I can guarantee you there were some people standing at the foot of the cross seeing Jesus, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, hanging on that cross, and they thought, that's a bad plan. Now you got to come with power, not weakness. And God was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. This is the linchpin. This is the whole point of my redemptive story for my people. And some of you think, yeah, you know what, you're right. I am the impossible situation. Because he could never forgive me. Pastor, if you knew the things I have done and am currently doing, he could never forgive me. And he could never, he could never accept me. Now I know he can accept those church people and those pretty good people, but he could never accept me. And he, he could never love me. Maybe when I get my act together, maybe then he will love me. And what becomes the impossible situation is your own, is your own heart. And in fact, some of you are like, hey, listen, what's going to be impossible for me is to believe. Because I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and my dad died. Where were you, God? I look, at that, I look around at the evidence right here and there's no way, there's no way I could believe it's going to be impossible. And see, your heart, it could be Jericho, but nothing is impossible with God. And what's happening in this moment, in this moment, as much as you hate it, you can't fight it. You can try. You'll always lose. And in this very moment, the Holy Spirit is just circling that heart over and over and over again. And that trumpet blast and that voice shouts and you're like, what is happening? And the walls of stone in your heart come tumbling down. Listen, I know, I know. Because when I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that's what happened to me. I was a teenager. The reason I got to camp is because I'd been in a bunch of trouble. The only Christians I knew, they all were really good and nice and those kind of things. And I was none of those things. I went to camp, not to seek after Jesus, but to seek after girls. That's why I went. I thought, God can't honor this. Look, hormones have brought a whole lot of people both to and away from Jesus, okay? It can work both ways. And there I am as a teenager at this camp. And I'd heard the gospel. I'd heard that Jesus loved me and died on the cross for me. And I believed in him as much as I believed in Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, college football, and NASCAR. I thought that's just part of our gig from being from the South. And then that night, the counselors at this camp I was at, Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center, they dressed up in togas and they reenacted the crucifixion of Christ, okay? Mel Gibson had nothing on him. It was like the Passion Live right there. And I remember in Bennettsville where we were, seeing this guy, this college student, say, it is finished. And what he was talking about was my defenses. And Coach Bully stood up after we saw this, and he gave a short presentation of the gospel. And he said, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, and he would say, and when I say whoever, I mean whoever, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And I'm telling you, in that moment, my heart started to beat, and I told myself, ain't no way. Ain't no way I'm getting in front of these people. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Ain't nobody's going to know what I did, and I've been lying to them all week anyway. We're at a Christian camp. You can get more dates. They'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, and memorize two verses and use that to my advantage. And I thought, there's no way I'm embarrassing myself and getting up in front of these people. And this was Baptist, so, so we had to sing Just As I Am, and we had to walk down the aisle, and we started singing Just As I Am without one plea. And we sang it. We sang seven verses of it. And we just kept going. Just, seven, just over and over. 
And I was sitting on a stool, and I literally wrapped my legs around the legs of the stool, and I sat on my hand. I was like, uh-uh, I ain't getting up. I ain't doing none of this. And then after seven times, I thought, I made it. I made it. And Coach Lee stepped up and said, I believe there's one more. And the walls came tumbling down. All my defenses, all my excuses, all my doubts, all my insecurity, all my past, all my theological uh, questions that I had about six-day creation, what happens at the end of the world, and all of those things, all of those walls that I had held up for so long, the current circumstances that I found myself in, the ones I put myself in, the ones my parents put me in, why God didn't answer my prayers about these things that seemed like it would line up with him, all of that stuff that I'd been holding up, it just fell down flat. And Jesus, the greater Joshua, marched his way to take his rightful seat on the throne of my heart. And he's never left. In my ups and in my downs, he's never left. So maybe you're the impossible situation. That today, that today, that your heart, the walls of your heart, they come tumbling down. And that you would surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to end this service the way Coach Lee ended that service a long time ago. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Not because it's some kind of super spiritual position or anything, but just to block out whatever distractions might come your way. And if you would say right now for the very first time, that's me, for the very first time I have realized that I need to surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. And I've still got questions and i still got doubts and I still have unanswered questions, great. But you just want to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. Then you just tell him. I, you don't have to pray after me. There's no magic prayer. You admit that you need a Savior because you haven't been a very good Savior of your own life. And that you believe that when he died on the cross, it counted for you. And then you confess right now, Jesus, you're my Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved. And so if that's you if, you, if you prayed that, if you told God, if you were surrendering your life, would you just lift up your hand and say, God, here I am. I surrender my life to you. Praise the Lord. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that all things are possible within you, God. There's people walked in here this very day far from you, and they're going to walk out from this place, sons and daughters of the Most High King. God, the only eternal miracle is when a life is eternally changed. God, I thank you that you loved us so much that you did send your son to die on that cross, to not only to tear the curtain apart between the Holy of Holies and normal people like us, but that we could be reconciled unto the Father. God, that you could tear down every wall, every dividing wall that would divide us from you. God, that would divide you from your children. God, I thank you, and I praise you, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And will you please stand as we respond? Listen, we respond every week, okay? And the reason we do it this way is because God initiates and we respond. We're going to sing an old hymn called, It Is Well With My Soul. It was written by a man, and though his current circumstances did not look like God was faithful, somehow, because he knew of the faithfulness of God, it was okay deep down in here, even though on the external it was not okay. He lost his wife and his children in a shipwreck when they were crossing the Atlantic, and then years later, as he was crossing the Atlantic, when he got to about that same place, he writes these words. He writes these words, it is well with my soul, whether I've got peace or sorrow, that's not the point. That all things are possible. God always keeps his promises. He was centered around Jesus, and he says, it's well with my soul. So we respond by joining our voices together to make much of the one that came after us. And we, and we invite you to come down to the altar 
Because some of you are in an impossible situation, and Jesus says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And if you're a regular here, this is when we bring an offering unto God. We bring our first and our best, our tithes and our offerings, because he first loved us by giving us his best. Let's respond.